Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. As you probably know by now, our podcast guests are diverse luminaries and they are knowledgeable in every sector of the industry. And one thing I ask almost all of our guests is what's next or what else should we be paying attention to in the world of waste, recycling, and organics? And it occurred to me that you could probably learn a lot from their answers. So what follows now is a brilliant mashup of what they shared or what a good chunk of them shared anyway. So I hope you learn a lot and keep your eye toward the future as you listen to their insights. Thanks. First up is Susan Robinson from Waste Management, where she mentions demand for materials and changing the narrative around feedstock for new materials. It's a great listen. I think we need to be, I guess, paying attention to a couple of things. One is demand, the demand Uh for material. And that applies to not only recyclables, but it applies to organics. And I worry that we don't think um, carefully enough about creating the sufficient demand to pull material through that creates that manufacturing of that feedstock for other materials. We, we are still having a hard time adjusting from thinking of a supply side focus and a diversion focus. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I, um, I've been thinking about is 30 years ago, when we, we started curbside programs, we had a lot of recycling before then, right? Recycling is as old as time. But we recycled to create feedstocks to make other things. And it was done for a very deliberate reason. And it only happened when you were going to use a material to make something. When we shifted to curbside recycling programs, we really, to get people to participate, we changed the narrative to a diversion focus away from a feedstock for a product focus and we lost sight of why we're recycling so i think we have an opportunity now to i hope change that narrative back to recycling as a manufacturing feedstock um, and organics as a feedstock for something else it's not about a diversion to get your numbers up it's Mm -hmm. about the environmental benefits of offsetting the use of virgin resources and so you know by by doing that then we can focus more on reduction and we can focus on making sure that we're recycling the right things well so that we truly have a feedstock for new materials if we aren't making things into new products, we've wasted a lot of time and energy for something that really has no environmental value. And and I don't think we've done a good enough job yet of recognizing um, how important that demand side pull is and that manufacturing process really is. This is Kristen Kinder, Vice President of Research and Waste Stream Sustainability at WasteQuip. And she talks about the changing waste stream and how it mirrors the trends in society and what we can do to be proactive. So one of the things I'm fascinated by, and I think this is something we've been talking about in the industry for a little while, uh, it's called the changing waste stream or 
the evolving ton. So the changing waste stream is this idea that our waste stream parallels broader trends in society. Uh, So you think about, you know, today we read so much online that the newspapers, we generate as a society less than half the number of newspapers that we did 10 plus years ago. Or, you know, you think about how much we order online these days. And so it's this idea that as as different technologies come online for consumers, our waste stream changes. And I personally find that, you know, having spent so much time sorting garbage, I find that really fascinating. And I think it's particularly important in our industry because we at at this point, are, have to be reactive. I think that if we as an industry can stay on top of what I'll say the rest of the world is talking about in terms of trends, and they sound very trendy, like IoT, I think an important one for us is 3D printing and what could that mean for the waste industry. If we can start to understand those trends that are coming down the pipeline and what they might mean as best as we can, I think that can help us adapt for the waste stream of tomorrow. And then I think being an active participant in the waste stream of tomorrow as well uh, involves tighter, stronger conversations between the waste industry and I'll say design, manufacturing, um, and distribution of our products. And I think that's something over the last 10 years that I've seen become much stronger. Uh, there are you know, there's the Ameripen, there's the Sustainable Aging Coalition, there's the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. You know, I know the EPA has done a great job of convening, you know, different stakeholders in the chain. Here's Adam Minter, self-proclaimed junkyard kid turned acclaimed author and bloomer columnist. Listen as he shares insights on his new book, Secondhand, and what he found researching it, and textile recycling, and what lies ahead. I think you'll get a lot out of it. One of the things that I found really interesting doing this new book was the opportunity to really dive into Mm -hmm. the state of secondhand clothing and textile recycling. And um, what I found uh, was a a market that's extremely complex, um, that's very robust, that's as globalized as anything uh, most people in the recycling industry do, but it's also a market that's about to undergo a massive disruption uh, for two big reasons. One, uh, um, the world is producing and consuming more clothes than ever before. You know, for a long time, it used to be that the buyers of secondhand clothes were in developing Asia and developing Africa, and the donors and sellers were in wealthy countries. Well, that's changing. And uh, China is now, I think, if, or will soon be the world's largest consumer of clothes. And one of the things I found when I was in Africa is there are large shipments of Chinese secondhand clothing going into Africa. And so that is driving down the price of secondhand clothing globally because there's all this new supply. At the same time as developing Asia and developing Africa get their own middle classes who want to buy new. So there's going to be, and I don't know how this is going to work out, but I I spend quite a bit of time in the new book uh, looking at this. You know, there's going to be a real shift in how textiles and clothing are handled, whether people want them. And I think think inevitably technology is going to have to come into this. But but there's a big change coming in that market. And I think, think, you know, even people who aren't involved in secondhand textiles will feel it in other ways, because I think to a certain extent it's going to be repeated in other markets that were dependent 
dependent upon income inequalities to mm-hmm. make uh, to make the trades work. Here's Steve Menoff, Senior Vice President at Civil and Environmental Consultants. And he talks about PFAS, specifically around leachate and landfills. We have to pay attention to its side of that equation. Uh, as, as you mentioned before, I think PFAS is probably the biggest concern right now that we're looking at as an industry from a landfill perspective, because if we can't find outlets for leachate treatment and disposal, that's going to have a huge cost impact. So again, that's one that we are reacting to as an industry. It's not the proactive positive side that we just spoke about a minute ago. To me, you know, how we can recover energy and how we can recover useful products out of the waste disposed of, to me, is the positive thing looking forward that we want to do as an industry. But from a landfill engineer perspective, I think the biggest challenges are PFAS, you know, in leachate and, and what to do with that leachate. And then leachating gas management in general, um, again, with the goal of making sure that we don't have situations develop in landfills where we'll have heat accumulation and potential problems related to that. I think MSW landfills are are not the the issue of the concern. I think it's when we take industrial wastes, we need to focus on how we manage those. Do they need to be monofilled, kept separate? You know, do they need to be solidified, stabilized, treated? before they mix with MSW in the, in the landfill cell. Those, those are the challenges, you know, moving forward. I'd say for the first half of that time period, what we focused on as engineers was the envelope. How do we design the best liner systems? How do we design the best cover systems? And I think for the last you know, at least 10 years, we as, as engineers in the waste industry have been focusing now on what goes in between and what goes in the landfill, because when it was when it was just MSW, it really wasn't an issue. That it wasn't a concern from a stability issue, or or you know elevated temperature or any of those type of things. And now that we're seeing more industrial waste going into you know municipal solid waste landfills, what's actually in the landfill has become the issue that engineers are focusing on managing. Right. Here's Michelle Nestor, president of Nestor Resources. She talks about waste to energy and renewables of all kinds. I think the industry needs to know how to be prepared for that. I I think we're going to see waste to energy grow, but maybe in different forms. I I think landfill gas is an underappreciated resource. I think that we're going to see a lot more use of organics and biomass. So renewables of all different kinds like that is is where we're going to have to look. And I also think maybe redefine what we think of as recycling, uh, particularly with plastics. There are There's a lot of technology out there that can take some of the plastics and turn them into synthetic fuels instead of worrying about bottle-to-bottle recycling for every single thing we produce. Here's Jason Gates, CEO of Compology, talking about the generator responsibility side of the industry and the interesting aspects of that. Well, I think in the industry, what we're starting to see is a larger responsibility of large waste generators saying that they want to contribute to our zero waste goal. And that comes in a lot of different forms. We're starting to see 
waste generators change the packaging that they're using and collaborate specifically with big recycling companies to understand what materials they should and should not be making their packaging out of and what they can be doing themselves in order to reduce the amount of non-recyclable material that's getting generated. We're seeing a shift uh, of large waste generators to promote an industry around the reuse of products as opposed to single use. And I don't know about you, but in San Francisco, it, it feels like almost everybody has a, a travel thermos. Right. Kind of, <laughs> BYO mug to the coffee shop um, as opposed to just using a paper cup. Yep. The push from generator responsibility side, I think, is really interesting and is helping to drive change in the industry in a really positive way. Um, it's bringing awareness to it. It's making consumers more conscious of what they're buying and who they're buying from. And it's really changing the dynamic, right? Um, there are supplier um, companies who who now get a lot of credit and get a lot of customers by promoting how focused they are on diverting waste from landfills and making the sustainable choice. Um, So I think that's going to become an increasingly influential piece of the industry over the next several years. This one is from Ann Germain, Chief Operating Officer of the National Waste and Recycling Association. And she shares why PFAS is on her mind and why it seems to be everywhere. A couple of things that are big focus for me right now. One is PFAS. So these are per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. And there's a lot of laws and regulations being pointed at PFAS. And what these are, it's a, it's a group of substances that is used in a tremendous number of different products. Anything that requires like a, a nonstick or stain-resistant coating um, will have will generally be uh, stain-resistant or nonstick because of PFAS. So your Teflon pans or the inside of microwave popcorn bags or candy wrappers or you know all sorts of food products. Uh, a lot of carryout containers might have PFAS lining them. But your upholstery and your carpeting and your rain re- repellent jackets and you know all that kind of stuff will have uh, PFAS. And not just that, but cleaning products and personal care products and dental floss and you know there's just thousands and thousands of different applications. And so clearly as people like use some of these products and they get thrown away and they make it to the landfill, you know, it's some of these PFAS are making it into the landfill leachate. And the landfill leachate, of course, gets sent over to a wastewater treatment plant. And the wastewater treatment plants are getting tested and, you know, they don't want it. And so, you know, there's there becomes a conversation where, well, we need to figure out how to work with everybody on the PFAS issue and, and make sure that, you know, environment's protected, but also make sure that people understand that, you know, their exposure to PFAS on a personal level is probably interacting with products that have PFAS in it more so than anything with landfills. And because... Right now, a lot of lawmakers have been looking at landfills as the source of PFAS, and um, frankly, it, it isn't. It's not that it doesn't have it in there, but it's at such low levels that your exposure to PFAS is likely from foods you eat, products you use, rather than from uh, anything related to the landfill. So, you know, we're we're working with internally 
as well as with some of our chapters, as well as with other groups on trying to address the, the PFAS issues as they arise. And then we're also really focused on uh, trying to come up with something on lithium batteries. Okay. We have been working with all the other industry uh, associations as well as EREF to try and do what we can to focus on getting our arms around like what what all the issues are. So first of all, we're having increasing frequency of fires occurring at our recycling facilities and in some of our trucks. And often the source of that is a lithium battery. And with the lithium batteries getting smaller and more compact and more powerful, trying to figure out what we can do to address lithium batteries, how we can get them removed from our recycling stream so that we don't have these problems. And then also to try and come up with best practices so that our members will be prepared when um, when they do encounter these batteries, like how to recognize them, how to remove them, where to store them, how to store them, you know, that kind of stuff so that um, they minimize their risk for a fire. This is Matanya Horowitz, CEO of Amp Robotics, and he talks about extracting the most value from your materials and the technology you may have invested in already or plan to. Most of the things that come to mind are things I think people are already um, looking at, which is you know these new new pieces of technology you know from us and from other uh, vendors. They're they're really opening new doors in terms of quality. And you know, if, so if I was even if I wasn't kind of in my current position, I would be heavily focused on, okay, how do you really extract the most value out of all of this material? You know, how do you get highly pure material? How do you run your facilities really hard with a lot of throughput to really maximize um, the investments that have been made? And I think, I think that's what's happening right now all over the industry, um, you know, maybe even accelerated by the situation with uh, China and, and what's going on with commodity prices right now, where, you know, if you're in this business, you're saying to yourself, okay, it's getting harder to, uh, you know, um, what's the expression? It's uh, like squeeze blood out of the stone, right? <laughs> so, okay, so let's put our heads together, roll up our sleeves and figure out how to do exactly that. And when commodity prices recover, we're all going to, we'll be in great shape. So I, I think new technology is opening up doors that let us combat, you know, uh, falling commodity prices. And so that that's what I would be looking at, you know, as technical tools as a solution. And of course, shameless plug, I think robots are a great way to do that. <laughs> um, you know, it's some of the work we're doing now, bringing our robots to fiber lines, you know, increasing our throughputs and getting, you know, really good uh, purities. Um, you know, wh what we're trying to do is make that transition to heavy automation and allowing facilities to extract all the value they can out of those materials as easy as possible. But, but of course, you know, we're one tool among many. And, uh, you know, I see some of the things with the new optical sorters, improved reliability of different things like disk screens. Uh, even though I don't run a MRF, I just, I, those things all make me excited as well. Listen to Mike Schwalbach from Sierra Container as he talks about recycling education, collaboration, and infrastructure. Well, I, th I think we all know the hot topics, uh, the recycling world, uh, everyone is obviously tuned into. And I think it's yeah, I think we're on the right path. I think that we will figure out over time, it's going to take a little time that I go back to that infrastructure, the right infrastructure uh, to handle um, the recyclables that do have value. And really the whole industry is trying to educate whether it's it's their customers and municipalities or you know local government counties, 
and the actual end customer about recycling. And let's, let's face it, this has happened multiple times uh, in, 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 in the, even in the world of recycling. So we will figure it out. I think it's an edu- blend of an education with the end customer, uh, the municipal, the local governments, uh, and then developing, whether it's technology or that infrastructure, find the point where we can still provide that service and deliver value. Here what John Hanselman, chairman and CEO from Vanguard Renewables, has to say about building American capacity for materials and then also building the recycling industry back up in the U.S. And as a newcomer to waste, it is remarkable how many opportunities there are. I mean, it is such a challenging marketplace these days. And with China's exit, I think the thing that's, that's most intriguing to me and, and probably will require some help from the government. But building indigenous, you know, American capacity for cardboard and plastics and glass, um, where we've we've kind of taken the easy way out and sent it over to China and, and let them do it and make the profit. Um, building those industries back up in the U.S. Uh, I think is absolutely fundamental to what we do. I, I was at a symposium with the head of, of Cal Recycle and. and he volunteered that up and until China's imposition of their national sword program, um, California was exporting, I think, if the, I may get the number wrong, but it was 98% of their recyclables. Um, and and that's, that's not good. Um, you know, not having native capacity. We're looking for jobs. We're looking for industries um, which people can, can jump into. Um, those, those, you know, the old manufacturing jobs, I think, is, are things that people didn't want to do. But new manufacturing can do some pretty neat stuff with, with how would you make um, an indigenous cardboard industry, an indigenous plastic recycling industry um, in the United States. And that's something where I think there's going to be a lot of capital applied to that. Um, I think there has to be. Uh, the recycling model that, that we all have been living with, I think, is broken and, and is probably going to be broken for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see China re-entering the market. I don't think this is a, a momentary thing where they just want to kind of give everybody a, a swift poke in the ribs. I think they're gone. Um, and so I think that the challenge now to us is, okay, we all still want to recycle. Um, what are you going to do with it? And I think that's that's something that, that I must... I think the, the venture capital and private equity markets um, will start addressing that pretty quickly because as prices continue to just go up and up and up, I think there'll be a lot of really interesting opportunities to do that. Here's Keith Harrison, CEO of the Recycling Partnership. And she talks about finding out what does the public want and how do you marry that passion and actions around what they want and what they are willing to do and accepting that every small action matters. The other thing is, you know, the personal interest. What do our citizens, you know, think? Like, you know, when you go to your book club or a cocktail party or, you know, you meet people as you're standing around at your kid's soccer game and you say what you do, you're in recycling, like, doesn't it immediately go to, hey, what are those arrows about? And are caps on? Or what about boxes? You know, like, people get pretty granular and they have they have this passion, but that passion is it's fragile because they want to know that it's worth their effort and that something's happening. And you marry that up with a concern about, you know, plastics in the ocean and with climate action. And you see a public who 
um, is worked up and is calling for action, but but isn't sure that their individual actions are enough to to make a difference. And so I think we in the waste and recycling space have a real opportunity to make sure that uh, consumers and citizens understand that every every bottle, can, carton, box, it all matters. And every decision in our lives matter. And that when we speak up for concerns around the environment and concerns around climate action, that we're speaking up for ourselves, but we're also speaking up for our family and our neighbors. And um, and for those things that don't have voices, like like whales, like turtles. You know, I'm going to circle back to where I started in with all of this of there is no time to be timid. Uh, it is it is very much um, the time to uh, really invent a recycling 2.0. And the public wants it, and we want to give it to them so that we keep them engaged. Um, companies want it because they're making goals, and, and frankly, our, our planet can't handle anything other than it. I hope you got a lot out of this What's Next mashup. I know I did. And it's so exciting to think about what lies ahead in the world of waste, recycling, and organics. So thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you many more podcasts.